You know, the ghost is the hardest part to play in Hamlet. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Quite yes, that's right. right. Quite right. <laughs> I love it. Because, dude, like, that's the only response you could say to something you've probably never thought of at all, you know? It's like, yes, yes, quite right. Absolutely. And then fucking, like, make up a lie, you know, about Shakespeare, you know? <laughs> Dude, I love... He was a terrific actor. Oh, God. <laughs> How would you know? How would anyone know? Like, give me a break. Because he played the ghost, the toughest part. <laughs> yeah. He's <was> genius. <laughs> oh, God. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very... Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always, are... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week, and the other two hosts select movies in response to that theme, and we come on here, we have it out, talk about it, share our feelings, all that good stuff. (laughs) It's episode 116, and this week we're spinning the wheel of fortune and fate and fantasy as we get into the realm of of all that stuff. uh, As I... Explained the end of last week's episode, I had watched a pair of films last week that uh, dealt with sort of fate and fortune and spiritualists, real and otherwise, and uh, I got inspired by that. And so I asked the guys to bring me uh, something in that vicinity, and uh, I gotta say, you nailed it. This is exactly what I wanted. Uh, We got two very different looks at stories about uh, fate and fortune, you know, and I think uh, it was really an interesting contrast in in so many ways. And also, you know, I was stoked to have two films from before 1950, you know, that's good. That's what I like. I like that old shit. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get on with it. Uh, what did we see inside our crystal ball this week? <laughs> Uh, Ryan, you had the earlier film. Uh, why don't you 
Tell us all about it. I'm glad you like that old shit because my film is quite old. I believe it's the oldest film we've done as of yet on the podcast. It's going to be hard to get older because, again, these are... It's those are wild terrain. The when you go this far back, you dare me. Uh, yeah, I do dare you. Okay. <laughs> Wait till one of us brings guy gets sprayed and faced with hose <laughs> right. from 1902. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah, my film is a, a ripe old age of 105 years old. My film is from 1918. And let me take a few steps back just to think about how I got there. I was thinking about the prompt, and I was thinking about it in the sense of fate and fortune. And, and I really, at first, was trying to just think about films where that was an overall theme as opposed to an individual figure in it. And I, I found myself applying it to a lot of different categories. But then I was going back to something you had said in your introduction, March, when you had said, bring me your fortune tellers, bring me your soothsayers and prophesizers and augurs and sibyls. And... That was when I, I, I started really going down the path of a fortune teller. And I know that so many films have a scene with a fortune teller, but aren't really about a fortune teller. It's so often you think like Pee Wee, he goes and visits the, the, the <laughs> hack fortune teller. There's so many scenes where someone goes and consults one, but it's never really the subject of one. And I was really charmed then to discover that in 1918, a woman by the name of Elsie Jane Wilson directed a film called The Dream Lady, which is about a woman who decides to become a fortune teller. So The Dream Lady from 1918 is a breezy 54 minutes, uh, which is always quite nice when you're going that far back uh, to pre-1920. And it's the only surviving film from Elsie Jane Wilson. I, I did a little bit of digging to see, you know, what her story sort of was. It's an interesting life. She was born in Australia. She started acting at the age of two and then eventually made the move traveling in theater companies across a few different countries, South Africa, London, etc., and then entered into the film industry with her husband in America in the, the 1910s. For a while, she was acting alongside him, and when they were recognizing at this point in history that a little more emphasis was being placed on the actual directors of a film as opposed to the stars, that's when they started directing films together. But she was always sort of overshadowed by her husband and wasn't acknowledged as much, and it led to a bit of a rift between her and her husband. I think there was a period where, on some of the projects they even worked on, they they didn't even see each other for two years. And of the films she directed, she did direct a couple features. This is the only one that survives intact. There's another one that there's about a 15-minute excerpt from. Watching it, it really holds up. I had a very good time. The core concept of this film, it begins with a woman named Rosamond sitting up in a tree. And we have an inner title that asks us, what do girls in particular dream of. And when she's up in that tree, she drifts off a little bit into fantasy and imagines herself as a princess uh, with a knight in shining armor coming to to court her. But that fantasy is soon uh, ended when she falls out of the tree, much to the chagrin of her rich old uncle, uh, who's just very cold and has a nasty mustache, and uh, accuses her of... (laughs) 
by crawling around in the dirt, she's going to get pneumonia, which is then going to saddle him with hospital bills, and that is why she's got to stop crawling around in the mud. Rosamond reveals to us that she, she has a dream. She has a crazy desire to live in a cottage hidden deep within a grand forest. And that really struck a chord with me. You know, I've got a, a little bit of Walden in my blood as well. And I was really charmed at her dream and her uncle dies. Thank God. She gets a little bit of, uh, not, not an endowment. She, she, she gets some money. Inheritance. Inheritance. <laughs> Thank you. She gets an inheritance from her dead uncle of $10,000. She decides to set up shop in a cottage in the woods and set up her own Rosamond soothsayer little hut. And that's what the rest of the film ends up being. She has people that come to her telling her what they desire, and she helps them achieve that. Things get a little complicated when some nefarious businessmen encourage her to start uh, telling her rich clients to invest in, in what they got cooking up. And Rosemond, who's ever the optimist, finds herself in a little bit of trouble. But, you know, overall, it's a really pleasant ride. I've seen people refer to this as it feeling like an original indie comedy, which I think is a funny way of looking at it in the sense of a film from 1918. And I also think that it definitely bears the stamp of an early film that does feel rather free from the perspective of a woman who's also thinking about gender throughout the film. And I think that there's a lot of interesting ways you can look at the film from a contemporary lens as an artifact and as some of the stuff it's just engaging with. So, yeah, I think it's a really remarkable film for 1918, and I'm excited to hear what you guys think about it. So that's The Dream Lady. Thank you very much. Andy, what's in your crystal ball? Well, you know, I actually said to Ryan that this one had me a bit perturbed, you know? I was a little stuck on this one because... My approach, you know, I was thinking about things like fate. I guess, you know, Ryan latched on to what he heard and, and I latched on to what I heard. You know, I heard fate. And so I really started to think about fate. And then I was like, well, you know, fate is kind of in every story, if you think about it, on a certain level, you know. Uh, and so then I was just kind of like, Oh, where where to go? I could go anywhere. I could do anything, you know. <laughs> like I could make the argument that just about anybody is in a, in a movie is is subject to fate, you know. Um, and so I was I got really lost in the weeds for a minute. So I I needed to just kind of hit a reset button, and and for me then um, it just became very very simple uh, when I went back to the classics, and I don't just mean the classic cinema, but the classic stories, the classic tales, the classic literature. And for me, uh, that brings us to Billy Shakes, William Shakespeare. And I think one of his uh, most cosmic plays, that would of course be Macbeth. The Scottish play. I don't know. We're going to get in trouble for saying Macbeth a lot. I was a theater kid. You know, you're not supposed to say Macbeth. You know? uh, yeah. you're, getting, you're tempting the fates. We already you know, have a gauntlet saying, curse. 
don't need his. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, good thing I'm not acting anytime yeah. soon. You know. Yeah, and good thing everybody involved in the film that I chose is uh, long buried. I'm I'm assuming at this point, you know, maybe not Christopher Wells. Christopher Wells might still be alive, but just about everybody else is, and and I'm already burying the lead. So, might as well bring it on out. I selected the 1948 Mercury production, Republic Pictures adaptation of the Scottish play directed by Orson Welles. Uh, for those who don't know, and I guess that's sort of like a sad thing to say, uh, if people need me to, I guess I can give a quick summation of Macbeth, the play, what it's about. Um, but, you know, Macbeth, the title character, is a, uh, a very, at the start, sort of just chill uh, nobleman in Scotland, uh, you know, in, in the court of King Duncan. And one day, while out gallivanting around with his best buddy Banquo, they stumble across a couple of witches. And these witches stop Macbeth and deliver to him a prophecy. Uh, Some would call it a prophecy. We, of course, might also call it a curse. And that curse slash prophecy slash, you know, uh, a fateful decree is that... This guy, this just dope of a of a of a nobleman, will himself one day be king of Scotland. And you know, Macbeth is sort of like, hey, how about those crazy bitches? Huh? You know what's that shit about? I'm gonna be king, huh? You know, Duncan's king. I love Duncan. Duncan's a great guy. He's a good king, <laughs> you know. But this, of course, sets in motion a chain of events tragic events which will find Macbeth becoming the king of Scotland through murder, deceit, uh, all kinds of, of, of literal backstabbing uh, as he sort of leans into the prophecy and asks, well, why not be king? Why shouldn't I be the goddamn king? And this, of course, uh, spells his doom because the prophecy is fulfilled. He does become king, but it completely destroys him. And, of course, his wife, one of the most notorious characters in literature, Lady Macbeth, as they conspire to take what they believe is rightfully theirs, the, the throne. Um, so yeah, this is a uh, production that Orson Welles put together in uh, 1947-48. Of course, Orson Welles had dealt with this material previously. Uh, he had put on two stage productions before this, one very recently before uh, the making of this film. He had done one for like the, Yo- the Utah Shakespeare Festival in like 1947, but more famously, and I think more bold, was his notorious production for the Federal Theater Project where he put on Voodoo Macbeth in Harlem in 1938. Quite a, 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 a startling, stunning production. Uh, at the time, it was one of like the first like major productions in New York City on Broadway that featured almost, I believe, an entirely black cast. 
past. And, you know, Wells, someone who was always, like, trying to, to make big splashes and do bold things uh, in theater, in radio, and certainly in cinema later on, um, would, would, of course, like, go back to that well. And, and he incorporated elements from those productions, those stage productions, into this, this film. Um, it is, I think, sadly, one of his... Uh, lesser talked about films. I think certainly compared to, to to things like obviously Citizen Kane or Touch of Evil or even other Shakespearean material he dealt with, such as you know the the masterpiece Chimes at Midnight. Uh, but but I think this is a stunning stunning bit of cinematic magic, especially when you consider that this was done relatively speaking on a shoestring budget and he takes that that threadbare budget and and sort of embraces it leans into it and and does a very sort of stark expressionistic staging on what are very clearly basically just big empty uh sound stages um it has a bit of a reputation for being somewhat um, wonky, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And, and that's partly based on some of the strange choices he made during the production. I don't necessarily mean the, the staging, because I think that's incredible. But, you know, one of the biggest um, um, issues this film encountered was actually with its sound, its audio, and in the various versions that were put out, you know, when when Republic sort of like took it over and, and slashed a bunch of it and cut it, one of the first big gripes they had was with the quality of the sound, with the sound. They didn't like it, you know, um, and we can get into this a little bit more and the effect that it had, but Wells had been experimenting he, he sort of like got it in his head at this period, you know, in the 40s of being like, you know, one of the biggest problems you have in making a movie is sound, is production sound. And it, it sort of shackles me as a director and it shackles the production, it shackles the camera and the actors, you know. Uh, so he started experimenting with something that he would really like lean into for this one, which was he had all the actors pre-record their dialogue and then essentially would have them lip sync during the production and I'm sure you could imagine in your head that must have been quite difficult for the actors and create all kinds of issues and it did and and we'll talk about some of that later but in addition to that uh, he chose to to have them you know, reading the, the Shakespearean dialogue, reciting the Shakespearean dialogue in thick Scottish brogues. And, and the folks at Republic, you know, some of the execs there were just like, we got to ditch these accents. No one can understand what the fuck they're saying. It's Shakespeare already. We don't need to make it harder with these, like, very thick Scottish accents. So in the truncated version, they also forced Wells to go back in and re-record all the dialogue ditching the accents entirely. But the version that we watched, the version that is most readily available, uh, is the restored version in length and in Scottish accents. Um, 
I think for a guy who was very clearly into Eisenstein, Soviet montage, and German expressionism, and, and that stuff having a big sort of influence on him, to me, this is one of his most uh, expressionistic montage experiments, you know? I, I, I think it maybe for me is, is his most expressionist, German expressionist kind of film. Um, and we can sort of get into that later because obviously it's Shakespeare, folks. You know, you know what you're dealing with. You know what you're getting into there. And if you know the basics of the story, my advice always is like, well, don't worry about the words. Just, just get into it. Get into the staging, the emotions, the performances. And in this case... I think the uh, incredible haunting imagery of his staging. Uh, I think it is a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, gothic nightmare of a film. And that is why I selected it for this week. Macbeth from 1948. Thank you very much. Well, I think... You know, obviously we can make the assertion, as I already sort of have, that uh, Macbeth is uh, extremely doom-laden and very gloomy, uh, and the dream lady is very optimistic and very positive, you know? It was, oh, yeah. it was a very wholesome <laughs> experience. It was like a Hallmark movie after Honestly, watching Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is interesting, Andy, because, you know, your emphasis on, on the expressionism, yeah, I guess it sort of is a fun connection then to the silent era. And Wells, of course, a student of the silent era, and so him definitely throwing back to that period, I think, shows you what... Yeah, cinema had to offer back then the light in the dark, yeah. you know? Well, and again, in that crazy technique he tried to 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 utilize of basically shooting a silent movie. Yeah. I mean, the the stories on the set were like he was just like shouting at all the actors while they were making the movie because they weren't recording almost entirely. They they recorded like no production sound. There is one scene where there is production sound. We could talk about that one a little bit later, but like, yeah, Wells was shooting like a silent movie with yeah. silent techniques for the most part. You can tell the way the camera moves. I mean, yeah. But I want to say, first off, uh, there before this, there are only two Orson Welles films that I hadn't seen. You know, I've sort of been putting them off. It's a bad cinephile. Uh, two Shakespeare films, Macbeth and Othello, which oh. I had never seen. Of course, I'm a huge fan of Chimes at Midnight. I've seen it a couple times. Mm -hmm. But I was sort of saving these. And I think, you know, after this, I was going to watch Othello, but I didn't want to get my mind confused. So yeah. I'm going to do it after this. But... I got to say, you know, Macbeth has a reputation of of not just being a lesser Wells film, but the lesser of the three uh, Shakespeare films. That's sort of the consensus. And so I of had a big tragedy. Yeah. And I sort of had like, you know, those kind of expectations. Uh, and I didn't expect to, I guess, love it as much as I did. But why wouldn't I? It's Orson Welles. I love Orson Welles. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was just interesting to see it reminded me of 
one of our early episodes when I brought Reign of Terror, a.k.a. Black Book, mm-hmm. uh, onto the pod, which was a late 40s uh, conscious throwback to silent era expressionism telling of the French Revolution on a threadbare budget. And... This film sort of comes out of that same time and place. It's the late 40s. Aren't we experimenting now? You know, especially these guys who are total pros going like, all right, in 20, what can we do in 23 days? Well, certainly we can't make anything realistic. So go for it, you know? And, and I, yeah, I, I was really into it. And uh, look, folks, don't take it from me. I found uh, Robert Brisson was a fan of Macbeth. He (laughs) said, I love too much natural setting and natural light not to love also the fake light and the cardboard settings of Macbeth. Oh, yeah. So it really does, yeah, it's got a material quality to it despite being totally unreal Wells is able to utilize atmosphere and staging and camera in a way that just makes it such an engaging space. Always. It's full of fog as well, which like you love that. Um, Yeah. And as far as fate is concerned, of course, you know, it's it's the most classic fate story (laughs) there is. Absolutely. I'm happy you brought it. Well, yeah, it's funny that you noted that about the ranking of the films, too. I had not seen Macbeth, but I have seen Othello and Chimes at Midnight. I do think the ranking still stands, and I was I was surprised how much I loved Macbeth. Maybe not surprised. I had heard it was really, really rough compared to the other two. I mean, Othello almost feels fragmented and abstract because of just how it survived, and I was yeah. really amazed at how Macbeth because it feels so handmade and as if it's a group of people that came together to do a community theater production with an extremely small budget. There's elements of Macbeth that almost impress me more than the other films that I think are more successful films in the sense of I was so hypnotized while looking at it, even while recognizing the fact that it cost $2. I mean, of course, it cost $700,000, but there are moments where it really feels like it costs $2. His costume, which I know he talked about having regrets of of dressing that way, and it was all that was available to him, but he's like, I looked like the Statue of Liberty, and he certainly does. <laughs> his, his costume is ridiculous. But there's also a lot of really cool design, and knowing that these were all leftover sets... And a lot of them were yeah, leftover costumes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, stuff used for westerns and stuff like that. And the fact that he was able to repurpose it that way and still bring so much passion and inventiveness into the way it is shot and lit. I mean, that's why we love Orson, right? I mean, it's just yeah. no one else was pulling it off that way with yeah. such little resources that make you forget about the fact that it. It's falling apart at the seams. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, I I knew all that when I saw this movie for the first time. You know, that's what I had always kind of heard about it. That was the reputation that the film had, what you sort of laid out. But I remember just when I was watching it being just, yes, so taken by it, by its visual quality, the, the, 
striking cinematography and all this stuff. But to me, it also was like of the movies he'd made his most theatrical. And I mean, you know, like a filmed play. And it took me to all these stage productions of his, which I'd only ever been able to, I think today all of us only are allowed to like read about, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't there in 1938 to see Voodoo Macbeth. You know, you can see pictures of it and that sort of thing, but doing some crazy shit with the lights, you know, and like creating a production of Julius Caesar, which people were like, yeah, it was the greatest fucking version of Julius Caesar ever on stage or whatever, you know, and it was just because of four lights, you know, or something like that. But like this movie to me was a movie where I felt like I, I see that I see the stage magician at work, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily like the cinematic magician, and it's a piece of cinema and and a and a, a, a an incredible, I think, a, a piece of cinema. But like, I feel like this movie gives you like a window into what being in a, a like a Broadway theater and watching an Orson Welles play would feel like, you know. But of course, given this this extra flair of of being able to like capture him in the most extreme low angles possible (laughs) so it looks like he's 50 feet tall you know he's the only guy who would approach a filmed play from only high and low angles yes absolutely there isn't an eye level (laughs) angle in the entire goddamn or if it is it's part of like an eight minute long take or something because he also mixes those in with the cutting I mean there are some spectacular long takes but in that theatrical sense that they aren't going a look at this long take they're just watching people do fucking shakespeare and then he'll move the camera a little bit mm-hmm. you know so uh it's got that quality but b movie shakespeare is insane and the fact that like he did it um lends that that extra bit to it and it's also you know speaking of the cinematography uh one of john l russell's first films that he shot as a dp uh and hey i just saw his work in moonrise on film the other night great looking film film but he went on to do fuller films lang films and of course he did psycho uh and this is like the birth of of his career as like a major dp so wells found him when he probably cost nothing you know and elevated him yeah uh, for sure yeah he's just some like republic contract guy you know in thinking about mise-en-scene in general too one thing i was so impressed with the dream lady for a film from 1918 was the clarity of its sequence of events and also how, of course, it's still pretty old-school, primitive, pre-1920 mise-en-scene. However, I will say the way it was arranged, the way we went from shot to shot and were cross-cutting between locations, that that took me aback. I was thinking about when we were watching Body and Soul and how we were... We were like, whoa, this is nuts. You know, we, we felt a bit lost in the woods at times in its design, and that was what made it feel so alive. And I was surprised that the dream lady was so proficient. I felt like I was following the logical sequence of the shots. They weren't, you know, radical necessarily, maybe, but that was something I wasn't necessarily expecting because I feel like a lot of stuff from that era I've seen 
is is extremely theatrical where it feels like you just got a couple people standing in the center of the screen moving around we cut we're in a new room and this one felt a little more intentional than that yeah i i wrote down chaotic time not because it was not understandable but because it was like ruthless and efficient and fast i mean the fact that it goes from that opening with her and the old major and then it's just like oh he's dead yeah, she's got money now. Oh, boop! She's in the ca- she's in the cabin in the woods. You know, it was just like, you know, the purest, most efficient, like Hollywood style storytelling I've ever seen. Because like, it just moved, you know, and like, yeah, yeah. that's so true. <laughs> Honestly, that's why I was like, it felt like a lifetime movie to me. It felt like a Hallmark movie because it was just like, it was wasting. Like not a second of that 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 runtime, uh, you know, in the way that like yeah, Wells will have these like lawn takes where there's just time to like breathe and 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 seethe and think, you know, like there's none of that. Like no one's really thinking very much in this film. Everyone's just doing constantly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the reveal of the dead uncle was when I really strapped myself in and realized what kind of a ride we were in for because the fact that he gets his own inner title of who he is who's playing him you think that Mm -hmm. this guy's gonna be a villain for at least the first 15 minutes of the film i was Uh, like this is a major player here i'm I'm writing it down the the major no pun intended (laughs) you know and he's in the film for a single shot yeah, he's grumpy and he dies off screen. It's the the next bit of news we have after he, or maybe he's in two shots. I think there's a moment when he's yelling at her about the pneumonia. That might have been a two shot, but in my mind, it's it's him sitting in his chair with a little blanket on his lap, and then there goes there goes Uncle. He's gone. Dude, he's 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 King Duncan in this in this movie. You know? yeah. he's just kind of like introduces himself, you know, says a couple things, and then like goes off to bed to die off screen. Yeah, there, there's also you various fantasies and dreams that are mixed in as well, which again, you know, were were very uh, very swiftly integrated. I mean, it again, it was no confusion or anything, just flashing to these visions of people because. When they come to see her, I mean, I was cracking up about this, too, because she's like, I'm going to become a fortune teller. And she goes into the woods and her version of fortune telling is just asking people like what their innermost desires are and being like, well, my uncle gave me 10 grand. So like we can we can work this out or whatever. (laughs) You know, it's sort of like, yeah, she's yeah. Right. She's not telling people's futures. She's like making people's futures happen. That, you know? That's true. There's her, no fate but what we make, you know? Yeah, her official title is Rosamond Realizer of Dreams. Yes. And in hindsight, yes. I am trying to think, does she say, I'm going to go be a fortune teller out in the woods? Yeah. She does? Well, she, she says she's going to be a soothsayer. Okay, and her, right. sister, her cousin goes like, a witch, you know? And right. they're like joking about that. But, but she, see, that's, that's her scheme. That's her big, that's her big scheme is like you know she she gets you to sort of like read you know she reads your future she gets to be like oh you know like first of all give me a little sense of what your deep desire is you know and and that was one thing too like there was a lot of discussion about desire in this movie which was was very interesting um 
And then, you know, someone would say it, say it, you know, someone would say what their, their, their dream was, their, the, the future that they wanted. And she could sort of sit there and be like, I see it happening. And then she could just like fan off a couple hundreds to somebody and be like, Hey, make this shit happen or whatever, you know, like, see, I'm what a fortune teller I am. I mean, I'll be honest. I enjoyed the movie partly because she is one of the most unhinged characters we've had on the pod, oh, yeah. I feel. I mean, she's nuts. She's certifiable as far as I'm concerned, you know? And and I was, like, laughing because I saw her as this kind of, like, in the modern age, you know? She would be one of these people that, that like, fucking writes a book called, like, dream it, wish it, want it, get it, you know, or some shit yeah. like that, you know, and she'd be like doing speaking tours about that, like the secret, you manifesting know, manifesting culture, yeah. <laughs> manifesting culture, dude. Like if you see it, like you can get it, you know, you just got to want it good. You know, you got to get it. Uh, and, and I just was like dying at her, like her gypsy cosplay that she did, you know, cause it was like, I want to be a soothsayer. So she, yeah, she takes the inheritance money and she like buys, like gypsy clothes, you know, for lack of a better term and just sets up a little like, you know, kiosk out in the woods, you know, and he's sort of like, all right, I, here I am, you know, come on down. Like, well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's like a key thing in the film is this like performative gender because she's, first of all, right. There's a lot of talk about like independence and she wants to live. Of course, the implication being like a man, like fucking Walden out in the woods by herself. Anyone who comes by. Uh, and so, yeah, her whole thing is performance. But what really, of course, I think is one of the most interesting things in the film is her client, Sydney, who comes to her uh, and then they dress her up like a man so she can go out and experience the world uh, as a man and befriend a guy with a mustache and be bros with him in this performative way and, and open doors that, you know, she couldn't open before. I mean, it is the like the B plot of the film really is like Sydney as like uh whatever you One know of the guys. Like, yeah just i mean it's 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 awesome like and so much of the film like you said Andy is about female desire or their desire and she's there to of course uh, realize it it's only when she gets mixed up with those those damn men that uh you know things go awry couple of duds but there is i think then a like a, a sort of Again, and I, I said, you know, like, oh, uh, to me, Macbeth is is one of Shakespeare's like most cosmic plays. But but for me, like, you know, um, exploring like cosmic irony, uh, tragic like cosmic irony. And I think there's 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 a bit of that in in this film as well in in the dream lady in, in in sort of how they're approaching the ideas of like fate and fortune and destiny and all those kinds of things you know because yes Macbeth is of course given this 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 prophecy you know like speak of your kind what are you hail, what is to do hail, hail, hail to thee Scotland and he's like I ain't that shit I ain't any of that shit you know but then he sort of 
wills it, dreams it, wants it, wishes it. And, and like, you know, the characters in the dream yeah. lady, like makes it come true through his actions, you know? I mean, he is, of course, at first, yes, like, made the Thane of Corridor through the, these strange events, which make him, of course, then, like, believe the prophecy. But from then on, after that moment, the result is all through his actions, but being aware of it. You know, he doesn't stumble into it. Like, he he throws himself into it. He pushes himself into it the way the characters in, in The Dream Lady are sort of like, is this what you see in your future? Okay, make it happen. Like, get out there and, and, and do it. You know, like you said, no fate but what we make, right? Yeah. So true. Uh, yeah, I guess the difference between them then is, yeah, one is theoretically evil and the other is uh, theoretically good, although, of course, arguable on both accounts uh, for a variety <laughs> sure. of reasons. But yeah, yeah I mean, because but she, but she, you know, she doesn't like <laughs> in the dreamland, she doesn't like murder that like, you know, wayfish rogue, uh, feral child that shows up <laughs> to advance herself. You know? Yeah. No. I mean, I don't know. It might be a little, a little cruel to, to refer to her as, as, as certifiable. You know, I do think she's a bit manic, but she does really come from good intentions. Even if she's got a, a quote unquote scheme where she's dishing out her inheritance money to, to other people to make their dreams come true. It is all grounded you know, she's someone who has seemingly a great deal of happiness and self-worth. And she says her secret is just to make other people around her happy and people envy her giddiness and her happiness. And sure, maybe being like that blatantly happy and having the blinders on when it comes to people actively then using you for their schemes you could be kind of certifiable in certain respects to be that oblivious to to the realities of the world around you but there's 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 beauty there i appreciate her energy she also kind of manifests like those good vibes in the way that macbeth manifests his his uh, disastrous legacy Inheritance oh, is of the epic crown. bad vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's not off the hook. I mean, Macbeth's certifiable too. Lady Macbeth <laughs> is definitely certifiable as the movie goes on yeah. for sure. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it's like, it, it's more just, yeah, the, the sort of, to me, like, uh, yeah, insane energy she, she throws into suddenly just, just devoting herself to this, this, very, very, very bizarre uh, sort of list of things that that she oh, of she sees as like perfect in in her life, including just like some some entirely made up dog breed called a Livonian bloodhound yeah. or some shit like that. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, it did occur to me that we were once again in uh, some call it loving territory because I was like, she's constructing a playhouse of fantasy. Yes. Like this is all made up. You know, like yeah. But in a sense, making all of that up, having these simple but obscure and strange desires that can make her complete her list of, of achieving happiness, this is the work of a free woman. 
And that's what this movie is about. Well, until she gets to the last item on her list, which is heteronormative marriage. Of course, you know? of course. Obviously of the times, no problem. Yeah, but, she still has her uh, dreams of the knight in shining <laughs> armor. But, you know, much of the impetus for this is to, is to be free of structures around them, right? It's a bit of a generous read, but a lot of the people yeah. say like, ah, oh, even even the one of the women who's sharing what one of her her dreams is what she yearns for is just to be free from my mother for a day to be free of these rules to just be able to do whatever i want and and yeah. that's also what rosamond's doing she she does want freedom and then maybe well, these yeah. are well, anyone would have freedom and happiness if you got 10 grand in 1918 yeah. i'd be happy too i'd yeah. be happy if i got 10 grand right now that's what i was about <laughs> to say it's it's it is Sort of a privileged kind of, you know, freedom at that point to suddenly build your dream cabin, finance your your soothsaying entrepreneurial, you know, uh, kiosk out in the middle of the fucking woods, and and yeah, like hire a a, a mountain child to to be your assistant or something like that. That's I mean, true. Yeah. yeah, the inflation calculator says that that would be about two hundred and two thousand dollars today. Mm -hmm. So that's nothing to scoff at. Yeah, yeah, she's fucking loaded, bro. Like, yeah. yeah, why not? I mean, if if you suddenly gave me that money too, I'd throw a little bit your way. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Macbeth just wants it all, dude. Macbeth just he's like he suddenly is like, uh-uh, like I want it all, dude. Yeah, like, you know you're in good shape when the uh the the happy couple at the center of the film, uh, when they embrace for the first time. Uh, there's just a hanged skeleton uh, in the background behind them. And this is, of course, uh, you know, just the milieu, you know. I love the gothic element of it. And it was even calling back for me to something like Marketa Lazarova, where I really latched on to, like, all right, this is, like, early Christian shit. There's still a lot of you know, the witches, right? There's mm -hmm. still paganism uh, in the air, right? And and that specter, you know, the witches are amazing. You know, the voodoo doll, as you alluded to, right, is an element. We're back in Curse of the Crying Woman territory. We have the voodoo doll being constructed of Ors little Orson Welles, you know, mm -hmm. just a little, just a little guy, you know. Uh, and that's something. But that, they're really haunt. They're really scary and haunting. That's oh, like all I wanted to say. Oh, like the no. sounds. <laughs> yeah, their sounds are so insane. It's like avant-garde shit. That's sweating from the murderer's gibbet, thrown to the flame. Finger of birth strangled babe. It's delivered by a drab. Make the cruel. Thick and suave. Like a hell broth. Boil and bubble. For a charm of powerful trouble. Yeah, it's it's like a horror movie at times. Uh, and, and that's it. I mean, again, like a very like bold choice of of you know, in staging it this way, like there is just this, this lurking violence that pervades every shot almost, you know, that this is not like a warm, happy castle essentially that they're in. I mean, they, they look like troglodytes. They look like they're living in caves, but yes, there's, there's skeletons hanging and there's fucking severed heads on pikes all over the place invading the frame, lurking over people. The suggestion that, 
again, like as strong as they may be, as as happy as they may be or whatever in their lives, it has come through like chopping people's fucking heads off and torturing people and hanging them and and making like symbols out of out of human bodies to to sort of announce that that power, that strength and that presence. Yeah. I would love a soggy clay orson to to tend to to have at the house a little clay orson that you have to spray with a bottle every now and then you know just a little bit of water to dampen them yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, Yeah, you don't want your orson fetus to dry out chia your orson chia (laughs) my orson chia yeah i that cauldron stuff is so great i would that really set the stage because i love the way I mean, just so many dissolves in this film. Having that cauldron dissolving with the sky and the clouds and the weather, that really invoked that that natural horror that you get with the Gothic and how many so many of the earthly pieces then can like connect back to nature and the sublime in a certain sense. And it's amazing that he was able to do that on just a soundstage like this, even later in the film when it's he's projecting shadows of trees up against like a silk screen behind him and those trees, the shadows would change. It was never the same trees. That was that was very cool. That was like something that would obviously hit really hard and be expected in a theatrical setting and environment. But seeing it on screen has a different effect as well that I was... I thought it was pretty sick. You know, time to dust off. Uh, it seems like we've been a while, but time to time to dust off uh, uh, our our Deleuze here a little bit because uh, this time around re- revisiting it, you know, and and for me, like really, really clicking with like the the expressionistic like depths of this this particular film of his and like yes the german influence obviously in the wild like uh, montage sequences you always see like the eisenstein influence on wells but this time around i was like really you know really clicking with the 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 german expressionists and things like faust you know i was thinking of like that whole crazy opening sequence of of murnau's faust you know and 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 things just like you know gas and smoke and suddenly the fucking four horsemen just like materializing and that kind of shit you know and i was like thinking in my head about like deleuze talking about the german expressionists and the the french and these different forms of perception in cinema one and for deleuze you know he would talk about the german expressionists as putting out this this gaseous perception and and particularly ryan using that word sublime and for deleuze of course tying it to scientific principles of of sublimation and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. of of liquids and gases you know changing properties and that sort of thing and that's what he talked about the german expressionists you know, as as these sort of transitional states between good and evil, light and dark, and that sort of thing, you know? And in this, with the dissolves, with smoke, with all these 
these shifts, you know, from, from, from like horror to, to, to romance and whatnot. Like I was, I was so there this time around. I mean, this is a, a gaseous film in part because of the amount of dissolves, but also because of all those, those bits of staging you described, you know, the only thing that seems concrete are like the caves, everything else you know, like the cave-like sets that they've built, like is just, it, it, the movie feels like one just constant dissolve. Uh, I know that he's cutting and there are like hard cuts, but to me, like part of his his real like magic in his cutting is like how he would hide cuts, how he would hide his transitions, like like sleight of hand. It, it's funny that you mentioned how gaseous so much of the film feels because a lot of the interiors, when I'm thinking about them, at the banquet table or in like the command station when they're kind of like making plans and think the royal chambers, you know, so much of the design, the texture of the walls and some of the things hailing, hanging from the ceiling to me looked like skin. It felt like we were in the bowels of this castle. And yeah. because of that, with the swirling smoke, it did give me this gaseous impression. But it, that to me also felt very gothic that mm-hmm. this the space we were in reminded one of the frailty of human flesh, whether that was intentional or not, but so often the that cardboard design of a lot of the actual walls in these rooms felt like rib cages or the inner lining of intestines. Very mm. scary. You know what it was making me think of this time around too? Uh, hard to be a god. Yeah. Like this, this felt like the same kind of fucking like, you know, planet that they're on in in that movie. Yeah. You're just like, yeah, meandering around with the, with the God of the neighborhood. Yeah. In the mud and the shit. It's like disgusting, dude. Man, imagine if Roddy McDowell was in Hard to Be a God. (laughs) I wish. If only it could have been realized earlier, as was intended, because I think he died in the 90s. But uh, I was going to say, Ryan, I hope you were happy that, uh, spoiler alert, Roddy McDowell is crowned king of Scotland (laughs) at the end of it all. (laughs) A lovely little treat. I did. I did. His presence was very funny. Hearing Roddy McDowell with his little baby boy haircut in this film yeah he's got like a little page boy little page boy wig on <laughs> yeah and yeah him just reciting shakespeare very very pleasant i love having roddy around each new morn new widows howl new orphans cry new sorrows strike heaven on the face that it resounds as if it felt with scotland and yelled out like syllable of dolor i am not treacherous but Macbeth is. You know, uh, something that that I've always been amused by, because I'd, I'd read about this film before I'd, I'd seen it initially, like years ago, um, and in one of the Wells biographies that I'd read, uh, the author was talking about, like, what a hard time Roddy had on this movie. And if you kind of look at, like, his character, like, he, he looks like a deer in headlights. He looks terrified. And obviously that's part of... Of Malcolm. That's Malcolm, baby. That's part of Malcolm. But apparently, uh, very early into the production, uh, Roddy 
incurred the wrath of Orson Welles and it was a total misunderstanding but poor Roddy who was like young and look at him he's like tiny and as you described like Wells looks like fucking Frankenstein's monster in this movie, (laughs) you know, and he's acting and directing, you know, at the same time. So he's like in that costume while he's directing, you know, where he said he looked like the, the Gothic Statue of Liberty or whatever, you know, but apparently like the set was like really rough and it was tough and they were doing long days and, um, uh, Wells was like, kind of like criticizing McDowell's performance a little bit. And McDowell was like, okay, I get it. And then offhandedly, uh, Roddy was like, I made a comment. I was like, it's so hot. Cause it was like miserable on that set. Everybody hated being on that set. And he was just trying to say like, I'm sorry, it's so hot. And Wells was like, you're not into this or whatever. And Wells (laughs) thought Roddy McDowell said, so what to him? And they said Wells like destroyed him in front of the entire cast because he perceived Roddy McDowell as like a young kid who didn't give a shit about the production. So I think that like adds into like the performance. Yeah, dude. dude, He's literally like he's terrified of Macbeth, the character and like the person behind him throughout the film. Like always with Orson too, it's hard not to, yeah, sort of just read into the, into the, the backstory of the film itself, because I was thinking a lot of his close-ups. I'm like, not thinking that's Macbeth or the King or whatever. I'm thinking like, that's a guy that has been directing a film for 20 straight days uh, and hasn't slept. Like that's what he like. That's like the energy he brings to this is of a, of a tired film director. But also, you know, Andy, you brought up Julius Caesar, and uh, I'm not smart enough to make this inference. I read it. Uh, some people do say that his Macbeth here is Mussolini-influenced, yes. just like the Julius Caesar uh, production he did. So right. the idea of the way he walked and moved was like the defeated Mussolini, you know, of course, Wells always thinking about world events and things like that. So I was tickled to see that. I didn't infer that, but I read that. I mean, you know, you know, it's interesting earlier on because you, you, you were like, Oh, it made me think about the black book, you know? And something that we discussed in that episode on the black book, which, you know, folks, if you want to know, and you might've missed it, that's in our revolutions episode very early on, maybe our second episode or third episode. Episode two. Yeah. Yeah. You can go all the way back into gaunt lore for this one. But we had talked about how that production was, you know, using the French revolution to also basically make like a gangster movie. And, and that's really also what he's doing here. You know, this time around, I mean, he's doing Macbeth, but this is a film noir as well, you know? And and you really see that, I think, with Jeanette Nolan as Lady Macbeth. I mean, she is like femme fatale mode in this. And and I think I I, I appreciate that a lot in this particular production is is, you know, he's really highlighting that that same kind of that noir element of you know, good people who suddenly go bad, you know, and scheme and plot. And and it feels so much like that, you know, that yes, there is this element where he's really focusing on the sort of like criminal enterprise that's being built here. So yes, his Macbeth is a gangster, but he's also a political tyrant. And that word is used later oh, on yeah. in the film. But for Wells, 
I mean, that's what he said. There was no distinction between a fascist and a gangster. So yeah, it's it's all there. You know, he's using, as he always did, uh, Shakespeare to be a, a bridge, a platform to the now, to today, to corruption, to buffoonish political leaders who lie, cheat, scheme to get there and then have no fucking idea what to do when they are there, you know? Well, I feel like that's sort of the implication at the end, and you guys are more Shakespeare guys than I. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt like uh, with some of the other stuff said by the witches and the other various prophecies that uh, Roddy McDowell is is not the solution to everyone's problems, <laughs> right? The implication seems that, like, here we go again uh, in the tone and with the witches at the end. To me, it felt just like, yeah, the, the beginning of another tyrant, you know, that sort of succession that I would imagine yeah, the uh, Wells was thinking about. Sure, the, yeah. the cycles of violence uh, in relation to power. Because look, what's the fucking implication about how Duncan became king? Like we said, there's fucking skeletons hanging everywhere. There's severed heads on fucking crosses. Who put those there? Duncan and his and his soldiers, you know, I mean, normal like, regime. Yeah, you know, it is. It's it's regime change. I mean, essentially, like Wells like makes a movie about a fucking coup, you know, and shows us like what coups look like. You know, people go in, they they kill the people, they suddenly seize power, and then you know they they get drunk and and sit around and don't do shit for the people, and then somebody else comes in and and then fucking wipes them out, cuts the head off the snake, and. And just puts their guy in. In this case, it's 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 doe-eyed Roddy McDowell in a page boy wig. I mean, no, yeah, Scotland's gonna be great. You the know? English backed Malcolm, you know, shudder to think, you know, what kind of debt he owes to the English after this. Ooh, oh, yeah. baby. When thinking about current events too, I was also imagining what it would have been like seeing the dream lady over the summer of nineteen eighteen when it came out. A few months before World War One, you know, was wrapping up. Armistice. And Andy, you mentioned it's a Hallmark movie in certain respects. It was probably pretty nice to to, to swing by the theater in 1918 to see something like this. Yeah, it's or, pretty different than that movie we saw where the guy gets skinned alive on a submarine oh, well, from yeah. 1918. But I was also going to say, Ryan, <laughs> you know, I was going to say to you, or uh, going to the theater in 1918, nice place to to catch you know the influenza uh, you know oh, that too. epidemic that was killing millions you know yeah good time to convene with a bunch of people you know spreading the flu manifesting after. the flu <laughs> <laughs> when I think about who Roddy McDowell would be in the Dream Lady I think he would definitely play the role of John Squire who is the the hardened bachelor neurasthenic and disenchanted, the man with the horrible mutton chops that's just sucks and is disillusioned, oh, yeah. smoking on his pipe and Yeah. Mutton chops gotta go, dude. And I like that his he has a governess that's hounding him that mentions that every every problem she brings up takes on the level of a national calamity. And I was thinking of her as as his lady Macbeth in many respects. Yeah, by the end of the film, I, I will be honest, in terms of the two guys and sort of the triangle that's established with her and them, both romantically, possibly, and uh, in manifesting and leading to crooked business deals, um, I really did 
like the 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 shady guy more than the mutton chops guy. Yeah. Even though he shaved off the mutton chops, like just such a dud. Like his whole thing is like, I'm such a cynic. And you're just like, God, fuck you, yeah. man. Just like moping on the couch. Meanwhile, this other guy, very dashing, very funny, very light on his feet. He's like the monorail guy from The Simpsons, you know? Yeah. Look at my plans, you know? He's just the music like, man, dude. Yeah, he's, he's like, I, I'll get you what, you know, I got this great company I've built up. Yeah, I really, I really, in the end, I was like, well, he did him wrong, but like, I still like him more uh, than the other guy. Um, and I first, I thought the boat was his, but I think it turns out it's Rosamond's. And I want to comment on the boat she has in her ideal <laughs> setup. Yeah, uh, the boat is called the Limit. And I love that because, again, every time you take the boat out, you're taking it to the limit. You know, like great name for a boat. Yeah. So good. Great name, yeah. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, like he's he's the he's the bad boy. He's the cad. Yeah, the and, flim flam man. Yeah, he's the one sort of like driving things. I mean, this other guy is just like I'll be honest. Like he was just kind of like lurking a lot. Yeah. You know, he just kept sort of showing up, and then. Trying to control her, to be yeah. honest. He was very know? uncool when Sydney kissed her as a, you know, as a thank you for her cross-dressing experience. And he, of course, misunderstood yeah. uh, the situation and got real mad. Yeah, he's like a, he's just a, he's a conservative dickhead. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, he was, yeah, he was a, just the square-jawed dud that, that, of course... You know, it's what every woman ultimately really needs. And, and and maybe she did teach him to loosen up a little bit by the end of the movie, but, like, now she's what, just his wife? I mean, I bet you right after they got married, he'd be like, all right, first things first, um, we're shutting down the soothsaying business because that's... <laughs> That's not good anymore. I don't like what you've been up to there. Like you got, I got this house we got to take care of, a real house, not this little fake log cabin in the woods that you got. You know. Now, interestingly, in the end of the film, when she does get with the dud, uh, they go in the boat out into the river, and before they kiss, it cuts away to the orphan girl and the dog. So yeah. maybe that's a way of saying this guy's a dud, you know? If we don't actually see them seal it with a kiss, I take that as a, a negative sign. I see it. I see it. I mean, I think the real movie for me would have been if, like, you know, she got together with Sydney. Like, yes. I feel like yeah. that was the real... The real love story that I 100%. was... 100%. I was looking for in, in the movie. And I think that is kind of coded in there uh, in a very, like, you know, daring way for 1918. The idea of, like, liberated women and liberated female sexuality is constantly sort of, you know, uh, lurking under the surface of a lot of the scenes and a lot of the interactions. And, and like you said, the, the whole thing with Sydney donning the clothes of... of you know, gender performing men and that sort of thing is like, is way more interesting than, than anything else that was really kind of going on in this movie. Because like the, the sort of wish fulfillment aspect of the movie left like no 
drama for me. Like I, I very quickly, and again, part of the runtime, and and as we've said, the sort of like breakneck pace of it didn't give you a lot of time to wonder if she was going to get everything on that list. Now she's getting everything on the list, you know, but like, I just kept being like, I want more of that. You know, I want more of, of, of Sydney and her good old buddy pal, the, the, the fella, you know, like I wanted more of that. Like, and, and that was perhaps partly because it's so uh, interesting to see that in a movie from 1918. But, but yeah, I mean, that to me was the, the real, you know. It's definitely the heart of the film. You know, you talking about it just there reminded me of The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, which similarly is yeah. a film where uh, nothing goes wrong for the characters. So it kind of just like deflates a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the stuff with Sydney is so interesting to read the way it's coded into the film because this film being so efficient and moving from moment to moment it's surprising that there's still so much ambiguity with the way that character is handled because one of the things I thought was really interesting about the overall design of the film is that when Rosamond is talking to someone and having them reveal their dreams oftentimes the dream isn't revealed in an inner title we just see the results the chain of events is usually the inner title saying and this person came and told rosamond what they desired and then rosamond's like great we can figure that out and then we would see the desire happen we would see an actual visual representation of it we don't have sydney saying i'd like to dress up as a man or i'd like to live as a man instead she just reveals that she has this desire and then we see that happen and then later when we have inner titles they use a he pronoun when referring to them. And so, yeah, I was. I think this could just be a result of the ruthless efficiency of it that is just mo- moment, moment, moment. But because of that, I think there is much more room for ambiguity than I was expecting in something from this era in the way that they're painting that portrayal of gender. Yeah, um, because the rest of it, uh, I, I shouldn't say the rest of it, but like uh, a lot of it... Um, to, to me, and again, I think it's still a time of great experimentation in cinema and people just sort of like learning what movies are and, and you know, people who didn't go to film school but, but were like getting cameras and, and, and just figuring things out on their own and making things. But, but this kept reminding me of like um, at least that part, you know, of, of Rosamond and her little list of, of like projects that, my freshman would sometimes make in my, in my uh, foundations <laughs> of cinema class where I'd be like, you know, there's, and it, I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing, but there is no conflict in your movie whatsoever. And it all works out great, you know, like, and, yeah, and we can use a little more of that in the cinema. You I know? mean, yeah, I guess so, not? you know, like, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> especially when you compare it to something like Macbeth. Yeah. You know? and, I was confused at first too, with the dream lady. I thought that Roseman might actually have magical powers very early on, just because of the way one scene was cut when the little orphan girl does show up and mm. she's wandering through the cottage and the inner title mentions you know she she desires one thing most of all and she starts having this vision of having a mother having someone who can take care of her and Rosamond is in another room she's she's looking in on the room and it's cross-cutting between Rosamond looking at the little orphan and then the orphan experiencing it in her reality 
And then also some shots of the orphan in a room that is not decorated without this new mother just kind of wandering around hallucinating. But at first I wasn't sure. I was like, whoa, so Rosamund does have soothsaying powers. Is she is she projecting some sort of magic onto the orphan where this is this is her reality suddenly like she's experiencing it for real but i think it was just the filmmaker showing her she's just another grifter you know in a long line of grifters so she's a good intentioned one doing doing good for others with the old major's inheritance you know yeah well i mean you know we get that same i guess ambiguity played with in Macbeth, you know? I mean, after they have, you know, killed the king, after he has taken the, the, the crown, after they have committed these these brutal, brutal murders to get where they are, you know, uh, we see that descent, that descent into madness for Macbeth and his wife and there are some scenes that play with this question of like well are they seeing the ghosts or are they simply just losing their shit and i think here in the case of of wells he actually kind of cuts down on the supernatural aspect that was in the play that is it that is in the play for Macbeth. and wells is really making it much more about like mental health, you know, and about guilt and about like this sense of, of crime. You know, there's this amazing, you, you already kind of alluded to earlier, this, this amazing banquet sequence. Once Macbeth has become king, uh, in, in Wells' version, he is now always drunk. It's plastic. He is hammered the yeah. whole time. And like Wells stumbling around as the drunk now king of scotland is is amazing i drink to our good friend banquo whom we miss would he were here it is it is just such a brooding gross like just i mean he's just a slide it also looks like he's gained like 60 pounds when he's now like the king because i think he's taken off that like He's taken off the hero costume that probably had a girdle in it, and now he's just like in a fucking moo moo, <laughs> and then like that ridiculous crown that just looks like horns, you know. And he's just drunk as shit. Which of you have done this? What is the moves, your highness? Thou canst not say I did. Never shake thy gory locks. Gentlemen, rise. His Highness is not well. Sit, worthy friends. My lord is often thus, and hath been from his youth. Look. Hello. And he rolls into that banquet, and he is just, like, talking to no one, right? I mean, he's talking to Banquo, his murdered friend, but, you know... He's not. He's just drunk as shit. He's hallucinating. He's losing his mind at this point. I like that from uh, Citizen Kane until Macbeth. He hadn't lost the ability of uh, the ability at all to compose like 
25 people sitting around a table on the perfect diagonal angle, you know, like the banquet in Citizen Kane. Yeah. And even just the shot reverse shot of like them all sort of looking at the camera at him. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, always with Wells and the Baroque camera angles, but the perspective in that scene is crazy. Sure. But we do actually, yeah, we see Banquo, but like, for a second. Yeah. You He's know? not really there. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, but see, it's it's also really cool, too, that you, you mentioned, like, Citizen Kane, because I think um, there are, like, very strong connections between the two films in certainly some of the visual styling. I mean, there are shots of obviously like a model of the castle from like a great distance that look exactly yeah. like, it's like Hearst Castle. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's yeah. Xanadu, dude. But like, but that's Macbeth. I mean, Macbeth is fucking Kane. Yeah. You know, and, and that's at the heart of that same character. It even flips a table. I wrote Kane mode in my notes when he, you know, classic just but the grand question (laughs) that is is in in kane and is also in the character of macbeth right what and it's it's a of course a biblical question and that's why wells is you know is bringing that element in you know he invented that for this production the the holy man and and played up the sort of like yes as you mentioned the christian and the pagan colliding with one another but right to to go back to the bible right what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul in the process that's what happens to macbeth that's what happened to charles foster kane you got it you got the throne bro but what did it cost you along the way you know you see that descent through this film it's it is the tragedy of macbeth macbeth was a good fucking dude and what the hell happened in that process you know to become the king you know to to fulfill the prophecy i think it's really funny when i was reading about macbeth and when it came out how it was originally going to be in the venice film festival but then they pulled it because of olivier's hamlet and it is crazy thinking about these two movies being shown side by side because one obviously just had so many resources it's so prestige and clean and easy on the eyes to watch you can hear everything (laughs) it all like makes sense and then you've got orson's orson's little project that is i think a better film but it's you know it's a mess in in comparison well he was by all accounts like embarrassed of it um, embarrassed of the entire film. And that was evidenced all like I- immediately after the production. Uh, Wells basically like th- this was the last movie he made in the United States before his quote European exile. And he was already kind of feeling it going into the production that basically like, all right, well, I guess I'm, I, I got 700 grand to make this, you know, this, 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 soundstage Macbeth and whatnot, but, but he kind of felt it that like it wasn't great. And he just took off to Europe before the post-production was done. And, you know, he was such a, a post-production guy and he basically like allowed Republic to, to have it. And, and, you know, it's sad. It's, it's a bit like, again, talking about tragedy and tragic because apparently Republic loved the footage they loved it and they were like dude you did 
no one's ever done this with the budgets we give them. This looks fucking awesome. Like, make the movie. And they were like begging him, like, have Final Cut, make the movie you want. But he was like disinterested in it. So he allowed, you know, basically this guy, Robert Wilson, to, to sort of oversee it and would just send like dictaphone messages about the cut. And it's it's sort of like a real head scratcher to be like, like the movie could have, I mean, and, and I, again, the version that is out there is like incredible, but Wells was more or less like hands off. And this wasn't a case, which was the case in many of his films. And even some yeah. of what people consider to be his better films where he was like just battling the whole time to get the cut that he wanted. They were going to give him whatever cut he wanted. And he just was like, ah, I'm off to Europe. I'm going to go like court Alexander Corda. And, and I don't know. I mean, I guess he was like, <laughs> He was working, he got hired to act in this movie, Cagliostro, but but it is one of like the, the sad aspects of this movie that he more or less abandoned it after the production. And he was even quoted as saying, along the lines I'm paraphrasing here, but he's like, you know, I think within this movie, there are scenes that are better than anything I've done before, but as a whole... It's kind of just an okay movie. One of the things that I read was that, you know, some people said that Wells sort of expected to be cut some slack for the budget, you know? But the sad reality is that no one gives a shit, you know? Except for, like, on the gauntlet where we can sit here and go, like, oh, my God, like, this film is amazing. It's such a low budget. But at the time... People weren't going like, well, he didn't have that big of a budget, but he did a great job. They were just like, this movie's uneven and weird. I hate it. You know, like it wasn't it wasn't that charitable reading. And he he was sort of hoping that p at least his peers would go like, look what he did with nothing. But no one cut him that slack. Yeah. And I think that too. Except Brisson. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, except the, the French. Uh, Andre Bazin was a fan. Jean Cocteau on the record as a fan. Absolutely. All the, it's just like, again, just like some call it loving. Rave reviews in France. Yeah. Panned in America, you and, know. And that's why. Always. I mean, this came at a time... You know, I mean, Wells' career is like divided up between like these passion projects and then things he did for a fucking paycheck because he was like a working, you know, for him, like making art was making art, but it was also like, you know, buying him nice cigars and, you know, like paying for his hotel bills and shit like that. And I, I, I before this movie was even shot, he was already being like, man, I should just, I should just fucking go to Europe. I should get out he of America. Been blacklisted anyway. Yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> true. But like he had, eventually he yeah. had an eye on like his, again, quote, European exile, like even before they shot a, a day of this footage. So for him, there was this element of being like, all right, I'll just, I'll make this thing. We'll, we'll get it done. And, and, and then I'm off, you know, and, and I'm out of here. Funny thing about having dreams of exile in Europe and also exile into a cottage in, in a beautiful forest. You know, those are the two. Those are like the two avenues for American malaise, right? Get me to Europe or just get me to the woods. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, you know, I uh, I know that he once said that the the highest point of his life and career was when he did voodoo Macbeth because he made the the march of time newsreel and that's when he felt of course that like you know 
that was it. And for, by the way, he was 20 uh, when he staged that production. And so for him, it was all a downfall from, from that moment when he did Macbeth in the thirties, that was in his opinion, like it'll, I'll never feel like that again. Yeah. Like uh, being on top of the world. Oh yeah. In the fucking newsreel, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> And I think also because of like the, the heady quality of what the federal theater project was all about and, and him like being like a true believer in that, a true new dealer and a true sort of like political soldier in like art at that time and theater especially. And, and, and the choice of even doing something like Voodoo Macbeth, you know, like there were people at the time who were like, he's going to do what he's going to do this. And that is like, one of the most legendary stage productions, I think, in the history of American theater. And then you blink and you're uh, on Herbert Yates's back lot, you know, in between Roy Rogers sessions going like, what did I do? <laughs> Chewing what out Roddy I McDowell. <laughs> Chewing out this little twerp. What know? did I do? Yeah. 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 I was surprised that Macbeth, even in its restored version too, kind of feels like it's falling apart at the seams, just the literal physical film of it. I feel like there were so many moments where the screen was pulsating and vibrating. That was kind of a shared experience between the two films because the Dream Lady also just being from 1918 and having been presumed lost until I think fairly recently. That, Very recently, yeah. You know, the, the, that film looks honestly pretty good but it also looks like a bill morrison movie it looks like decasia the whole film is crackly there's speckles everywhere the whole thing looks like it's totally falling apart but it is rather stable and it is sharp which i was surprised by but yeah both films (laughs) that i thought was kind of funny was i did feel like i was looking through a crystal ball because both felt as though they weren't perfectly whole or, or holding themselves together they were just like you know, barely on the edge through the mist. I think it's fitting, you know, uh, at at least in the case of Macbeth, because, you know, this is a rotting, festering kingdom. I mean, this is not a a bright, shining place. I mean, the entire movie seems to be taking place at night. You Mm -hmm. know I mean? Like, you never really see the fucking sun at all. In fact, it might be hell because I know, you know, Wells refers to his little assistant, Satan, as Satan. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the at the end of the film, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Like yeah. he went straight to hell. Sure. Uh, in the end. Sure. Again, maybe like a comment on the production itself of like, "Here I am, I'm I'm in hell making this movie." <laughs> He's such a bitch. Orson yeah. is also such a bitch. He yeah. loves twenty three sweaty bitching, days, you know? dude. He was just thinking about how much he was sweating. Yeah. You know? Poor Roddy had the audacity to mention that. You know, like, can we get a fucking? We're not even recording sound. Can we get some yeah. air conditioners in here? fans in here yeah, please you know i did want to shout out you marsh for picking a great playlist for the dream lady in advance yes. of watching the film i asked marsh to to pick some tunes to go with it because the copy that's available and you can see it on youtube has just really trashy you know well, i shouldn't be too mean I, I skimmed through it and i didn't like it it was a canned piano score i think it would be really well suited for a ukulele or a banjo or something but yeah marsh i loved your i'm forgetting the names of the tracks but you had a 40 minute rather light 
ambient mix, some cool jazzy stuff that fit really well, and then once the film went into the territory of the cops showing up or just investigating the fraud that was happening at this company, that's when it goes into the last 15 minutes of a much darker and somber audio track that you selected and it was kind of cool then because of that ending when she does go off with the dud in the boat the music was still pretty grim yeah and i thought it was some pretty inspired accidental music pairings to go with the dream lady and i've always thought it might be kind of cool to set up a website where i would i really wish i was more into music because i could then use my love for for silent film by it would be great to make a database of a bunch of silent films and then make playlists for people to have play alongside them i always wish a resource like that existed for stuff that doesn't have more contemporary scores because there's something about electronic music playing over a silent film that is so cool so thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, it's it's often my go-to, you know. I mean, we talked about this before when we did, like, wax work and I listened to, to heavy metal sleep, you know. Uh, but I often, if I'm watching a silent film, I go to, like, the minimalist classical composers of the mid-20th century. Uh, so Terry Riley, Lamont Young, Steve Wright, that shit. Always just fucking works because it's so mathematical and so rhythmic that it always ends up like syncing up with the film somehow you know i found it to be really good as well not to toot my own horn but uh yeah the sort of yeah the drone as they ride off in the boat i feel like yeah helped guide me to a to a more pessimistic interpretation yeah of of her her end there maybe she'll get with sydney maybe it's optimistic you know maybe they'll die of the flu yeah and it really hit when the police showed up because it made their grim expressions feel as though the weight of reality was entering into this utopia where she was just using her fairy wand as they said being a beneficent angel a beneficent fairy and here come the cops can't it's it's not all good god Steve, steve reich would actually some of his shit would be great over Macbeth too now that I'm thinking about it because as we described like a lot of it is long takes and there are just just moments where we're just sort of like looking at just figures emerging climbing through these strange like vertical spaces it's just so looming and so brooding and like and almost like the, the triangular kind of like motif and the way people are arranged and the way all like the Christian yeah. uh, icons and shields and uh, staffs or whatever those things are. It's very uh, geometric. Yeah, it's all very geometric is the word. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it had been ages since I'd seen Orson, watched an Orson movie that he acted in that he was either invested in or directed. So it was really nice to to see him act, you know, because I'm often mostly these days, if I do interact with Wells, it's sort of like an accident. I'm like, ah, he's in some some bullshit movie I'm watching, phoning it in, you know, like Donald Pleasance or whatever. But uh, yeah, nice to see him just uh, being Orson Welles, you know, just always captivating. Well, when you look in your crystal ball, Marsh, you see any films in there that you would recommend to people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Final Destination 2 from 2003. <laughs> God damn it. We were joking about by, it. Yeah. yeah, directed by... We were by joking, dude. <laughs> well, I, was like, I was like, we should do a Final Destination movie. Uh, we should know? do like should... four or five, you know? <laughs> yeah, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen the later ones. I've only seen the first three. But when this film came out and I was in college, uh, I loved it. Two, I suppose, uh, you know, way better than one for sure. But just amazing just grotesque bullshit you know and obviously uh it's the ultimate fate trap you know a lot of films use it uh but none have done it with such uh you know veracity than the final yeah such glee uh in the final destination series so yeah uh final destination 2 and leaning more into less fate and more into sort of like the dream lady element i was thinking more of like uh fake psychics uh Alfred Hitchcock's Family Plot from 1976 is a movie still underrated after all these years. Uh, Barbara Harris and Bruce Dern are fake psychics trying to like rip people off and the whole thing turns into a farce. You got uh, William Devane and Karen Black in there as well as thieves and the whole thing. Uh, just a very delightful romp through uh, that world of sort of the con man aspect of the psychic trade. So definitely check that out if you haven't seen it. I don't think I have, actually. Oh, my God, really? It's fucking awesome. If I remember correctly, I think I've seen the other one, Frenzy. Mm. Mm. Also, also good. Yeah, no fortune telling yeah. in that. No, that's a little more grisly. This is more of a farce. Yeah. Bruce Dern, can't lose. You can't lose. Uh, (laughs) Well, thank you so much for letting me uh, peek into your crystal balls this week. Whoa, Uh, easy. I was going to (laughs) say. Phrasing, dude. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It was good. It was good stuff. Uh, Next week, it is Andy's topic. What's up? Um, you know, uh, man, it, it seems like uh, lately, uh, I seem when I look at like the news or, you know, when I, when I dare to sort of like peek into, uh, social media and what people seem to be like talking about and worked up about, especially in relation to like, you know, world events, events in our country. Um, people seem to like be really focused on, on who the hell should be locked up these days, you know? And and that was, of course, uh, really like um, reaching a, 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 a frenzy, you know? No, no, uh, no intended connection there with the, the Hitchcock film, but like with all these like, you know, January 6th guys getting their sentences this week and people, you know, cheering or, or crying foul, this, that, and the other. Uh, and it, it, it just sort of like made me reflect on how um, actually one of my most recurring nightmares that I have is me going to prison for uh, a series of, of, of ambiguous crimes in my nightmares. You know, I, I never really seem to know why I'm going, but I'm going. I'm going to the slammer. It's very Hitchcock. Yeah, it is very Hitchcock. And 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 next week, perhaps I will I will maybe you know peel back the curtain a little bit into to why I I think I might have those recurring nightmares. But but <laughs> until then. Uh, Folks, uh, we're going to the big house next week. So, 
movies set in prison. That's what we're doing. We're going behind bars next week. Let me out of here. Yeah, please. As always, you can find us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and other apps near you. And you can always send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out. Out. Brief. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury.